Hello and welcome to this week's show with me, Phil, from the Leathercraft Masterclass. A big thank you to everyone who chimed in last week and let me know how much they really enjoyed the podcast. It was the most popular podcast by far. And one of the things that people really enjoyed about it was the quotes from the book, The Craftsman by Richard Sennett. A lot of people said that they really enjoyed that and the book review idea was kind of something that they were interested in. So I'm not going to do that every week. I've got a lot of different ideas of where I want this podcast to go, but I do have a book that I started reading a few weeks ago. I haven't spent a lot of time studying it. It's kind of one of those that I've picked up and then read, you know, for half an hour, made a few notes and come back to it. It's really one of those books you can almost pick it up and start reading at any point and you're always picking up new things and new ideas. Not you know maybe you don't believe everything in the book and you don't agree with everything in the book but there's lots of ideas in there and that book is the luxury strategy and it's written by two gentlemen from France who have a very deep background in marketing specifically for luxury companies and many of those companies are luxury leather goods companies so this is something that I think is important for us to think about if you're involved in selling handmade, high-end, premium, luxury leather goods, then you need to know how to market that because that's what stands between your company being a success and, well, ultimately being a failure. Now, if you're into leather goods as a hobbyist, uh, perhaps selling your leather goods is something you're interested in further down the line because that's a great excuse to be making things if, if you're selling them at the same time. Or maybe you don't intend on giving up the day job, but you'd like a side hustle where you could earn some extra income doing something that you really enjoy. So the book is written by Jean-Noël Capfra and Vincent Bastian. And the part of the book that I really find fascinating is the anti-laws of marketing. So we've probably heard of all, you know, the laws of marketing, Google that. There's a million websites telling you the laws of marketing are this. This is how to sell this. This is how to sell that. But these guys have come out with the anti-laws of marketing, which is very different from normal marketing where you're selling, you know, everyday products, supermarkets, um, middle-of-the-range cars, you know, all sorts of things. These anti-laws of marketing are specific to luxury goods so this is how to build a brand this is how to sell your goods and there's parts of the book which very much are to do with the psychology of luxury the history of the of luxury the sociology of luxury and it very much goes into that for the first third of the book but i definitely recommend reading the whole thing because it's very interesting and the more you understand luxury why people like luxury so we've all seen companies that sell luxury goods, be it leather goods or not, who have eventually kind of fizzled out because their name became weak. They started creating cheaper products or licensing their brand, licensing their name to other companies that produced under them. And, and eventually, yeah, Pierre Cardin was one of them. But I definitely think that everybody should read The Anti-Laws of Marketing because you know, I, th I think it's even available on Google. If you Google it, there's a few blog posts mentioning them. But I, I definitely recommend buying the book. But I will go through the anti-laws of marketing. I believe there's 18 of them. So I'm not going to discuss each one at length. 
uh, but I will just go through the 18 anti-laws of marketing and then I've kind of cherry-picked a few of them that I want to kind of discuss a little bit further. So the anti-laws of marketing are, number one, forget about positioning. Luxury is not comparative. Two, does your product have enough flaws? Three, do not pander to your customer's wishes. Number four, keep non-enthusiasts out. Number five, don't respond to rising demand. Number six, dominate the client. Number seven, make it difficult for clients to buy. Number eight, protect clients from non-clients, the big from the small. Number nine, the role of advertising is not to sell. Number 10, communicate to those whom you are not targeting. Number 11, the presumed price should always seem higher than the actual price. Number 12, luxury sets the price, price does not set luxury. Number 13, raise your prices as time goes on in order to increase demand. Number 14, keep raising the average price of the product range. Number 15, do not sell. Number 16, keep stars out of your advertising. Number 17, cultivate closeness to the arts for initiates. And number 18, lastly, do not relocate your factories. So those are the 18 anti-laws of marketing, and some of them may have immediately shocked you. Um, I think some of them are a little bit like clickbait, like what? And then you click it, and then it's you know something a little bit you know not as drastic, but they are very interesting, and it does turn kind of my original thoughts about luxury marketing kind of on its head. But very, very interesting. And I've kind of cherry-picked, as I mentioned before, a few of them so that I can discuss them in a little bit more detail. And the first one that I was going to discuss is make it difficult for clients to buy. Now, traditional marketing is the easier it is for clients to buy, the more likely they are going to buy. And that is true for certain types of products. If it's very difficult for a supermarket to be bought from, people are just going to go to another supermarket. You want to make it as easy as possible. The whole layout is arranged so it's easy to navigate where everything is. Everything is positioned just perfectly. So, you know, the person who walks in has minimal calorie expenditure before they get out with exactly what they want. Um, and now, obviously, in the UK, it's very, very popular to actually just order your shopping online and, you know, if you go online and you check out these uh, websites where you can buy all your shopping, it's a seamless transition from what you want to the payment process to ordering everything and having it in. And the idea is to make everything as easy as possible to purchase from. Luxury goods, on the other hand, work almost completely opposite to that, according to this book. Making it difficult for clients to buy creates desire and that's what you're looking for a good example for for that would be the uh, Birkin bag by the uh, famous Parisian leather goods company Hermes the Birkin is famous for not only how long it takes the fact that it requires many years of skill for the artisan to to create this bag to the flawless finish that they're looking for etc etc but one of the big selling points is it's difficult to buy now this may be a bit of a myth, but legend 
which is the most important part of this, is the legend folklore is if you just walk in to an Hermes boutique and then say to the sales assistant, whoever you speak to, I'd like to buy a Birkin. Here's the money in my hand. I know how much it is. I want to buy a Birkin. The legend is that you have to build a rapport with the sales assistant by buying several things and going back several times in order to buy a Birkin. And eventually, they will let you buy one. It's almost like having to work for something builds that desire. And we've all had it before. Perhaps some, we want to buy something. It's a little bit out of our price range, but we've saved up for it. And the longer time goes on, the more the desire for that thing starts to build. And that's the effect that you're looking for when selling your leather goods. It doesn't have to be virtually impossible, like you never reply to, you know, prospective clients' emails who are interested in buying your goods. I'm just saying from this book, make it a little bit of a challenge for clients to buy. Now, an example of this, if you go on to social media, say Instagram, which is, is primarily what I focus on, so you might hear me talking about Instagram quite a bit. Most of my audience comes from Instagram, etc. So on Instagram, if you look at the top leather goods producers, uh, top luxury leather goods houses, and especially the top artisans in the world. So maybe you have a particular idol or someone that you really like their leather goods. Do you see the little thing that you can click on and it tells you the price and then you can go to the website immediately and buy it? Because that is highly unlikely. You will then have to contact the person, most likely through email. They might not even respond to your DM. Then you have to request a price and then they might come back to you and say, okay, what are you looking for? What kind of leather so that we can kind of build an idea? There's certain steps that you have to go through. There's hoops to jump through. You can't just click to buy now. So the more luxurious something becomes, the more difficult it becomes to obtain, the more desire that you generate. Now, you may not agree with this all the time, but it's something that you see quite often. Inaccessibility drives desire. So that's something that they mention in the book. Luxury also has a waiting list. Now, waiting lists for things are often put in place even if the product is ready to go. Uh, again, Hermes is, is a famous one, but there's lots of luxury leather goods companies that will make you wait, especially for best boat leather goods. And it's almost a bragging right for people who've purchased a very expensive item. Uh, cars are famous for this, luxury exotic cars. Um, people will brag how long it took in order to get the car. You know, it may have taken them three years, five years sometimes or more for a car to be made and then ready for them to pick up after they've paid for it. And that is something that people almost expect when it comes to buying exotic cars, that it's not immediately there for them. It's something they're going to have to wait for. And then that desire begins to build. And, and if it's there immediately, eh, less desire. The next anti-law that I wanted to go through was forget about positioning. Luxury is not comparative. Now, that's very interesting because a lot of people 
price their products by looking at what they produce at the level that they produce it, for example, then trying to look out on the internet, social media, wherever other people are selling something similar to you, then they will look around at the prices, look around at other things, the customer service, the after service, etc., etc., for whatever it is that you're creating and selling. You're looking at other people to compare yourself to. Then you can then you know, work out a price and then sell your goods. So you could go, okay, this person is similar to me, they sell for this price, X price, and this person is similar to me, they sell for Y price. I'm going to choose somewhere in between, and then that's where I position myself and market my goods. Now, the idea behind luxury marketing is forget about the positioning, luxury is not comparative. The idea is to create a strong sense of identity and individuality. Now, this comes back to something I talked about in the last episode, which is the blue ocean strategy, which is trying to create a market that you dominate by doing something completely different or going in a new direction that other people aren't doing. And that's how to stand out. So if you create a strong sense of identity and individuality in a market that isn't being done by finding something that people aren't doing, then you don't have anybody else to compare to and neither does your prospective clients. They can't look at you and go, okay, I want to buy that. Let's check some other prices first because what you're doing is individual and unique and there isn't anybody else to compare to. And that's something that you call price anchoring where people go, okay, how much is that belt? Oh, it's $1,000. Well, the average belt is probably around $30 to $100. So they have a price anchor between $30 and $100. So people might not be willing to pay $1,000 for a crocodile belt. If belts didn't exist and you came out with a belt and you said it's $1,000, it's a lot of money, but no one else is doing it. And it's difficult for the person to then work out, well, who do I compare this to? Because there's no one else like it. So when it comes to luxury leather goods, Forget about positioning. Luxury is not comparative. So you should ideally not be in a position where people can directly compare you to other people. So create your own game. And this is directly from the book. Create your own game where you are not competing. So the idea is not to compete. So you don't want to be comparable. If you're the only person in the race, there's nobody ahead of you. There's nobody behind you. You'll always be the winner because no one else was running. The next anti-law is, does your product have enough flaws? Now, this is a really interesting one. And on face value, you're thinking, okay, no, the idea of luxury is to create something that is absolutely perfect, um, where there's no flaws, you're using the best materials, the best craftsmanship, and everything is perfect in in every way possible. Um, But unfortunately, luxury doesn't work like that. Luxury needs to have a flaw, a quirk, something that gives it a little bit of soul. Now, I'll give you a few examples of that. One straight from the book. They mention a watch by Hermes, again, the Faubourg watch. And this watch, if you check it out online, it has a dot, literally just a dot, at the 12, 3, 6, and 9 hour markers. Now, this is, an, in, according to the book, an intentional flaw that Hermes have put into there. 
because it's trying to make a statement that this watch isn't designed to tell you the perfect time. It isn't designed to make it unbelievably easy for you to just glance down at your wrist and you immediately know exactly what time it is. The idea of this watch is to make a statement, is to, to you know, buy something of Hermes. It's beautiful. It's a piece of art. It's not a functional tool watch. So, in fact, if you look at your watch and you've only got those little dots of the 12, 3, 6, and 9 hours, you literally have to stop and try and figure out where that hour marker is. Is it at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock? It's, it's difficult because there's no markers. So it would actually be quicker for you to get your phone out, press the, uh, the home button, and then just see the time on your screen. But that's not what Hermes is all about. They're trying to create something luxurious and having a flaw in your product gives a sense of luxury um and, and i remember years ago this isn't in the book obviously but aston martin they had uh, one of the features that everyone talked about but in kind of an enchanting way was the cd player couldn't eject a cd when the car was in third gear because the C <laughs> the CD would pop out and it would hit the gear stick so that you couldn't actually change CDs whilst you're in third gear. And it's these little things that bring soul and charm. It's the imperfections in things that bring that charm to a product. Um, an example that, that is in the book actually is talking about very expensive watches. A couple of examples I can think of Rolex, uh, say Patek Philippe, they create watches that are, you know, sometimes almost the price of a house, depending on, on what you're going for. But these watches are mechanical watches. And mechanical watches are highly inaccurate when compared to quartz watches. Now, a 50-pound Casio Citizen watch, it might be out by a few seconds every month, but a Patek Philippe, say, you know, $50,000 or $100,000, depending on the model, if it's a few seconds out each day, consider yourself lucky. It's almost accepted when you go to a Patek Philippe boutique and you buy a watch. One of your first you know, expectations isn't that it's going to be, you know, three seconds out per year. You know that it's going to be a few seconds out every day. And then every few weeks, as long as you've kept winding it, um, you're going to need to take it, you know, back or forwards a minute or two. In fact, they have um, a lot of these are called chronometers, which is a COSC certification from an independent organization in Switzerland. And they take these watches and they test them on these machines in different positions. So you'll have the, the face up, the watch is on its side, the watch is face down, all these different, I think there's like five or six different angles. And it has to average, I think it's like, it's around five seconds. It can't be more than six or something like that. Or it can't be six seconds fast or four seconds like that. There's some kind of very small variance. And that makes a watch also more expensive because they have to be sending these watches off to be certified um but the the whole thing is ludicrous because you know it's it's out depending on what position that you put your watch in 
So if you leave it, leave it on one side, on the crown side, overnight, it might gain or lose a few more seconds compared to if you have it on its back with the face up. So these are little tiny flaws that give the product soul. And people love it. And I mean, myself, I know I love mechanical watches. I'm wearing one right now. Um, it's not as accurate. I dropped this one that I'm wearing in the gym yesterday uh, onto a wooden floor and had a little bit of a heart attack. And I was actually surprised when I picked it up and it was still ticking perfectly normally. It came from a locker, which was my shoulder height. Uh, there's many, many watches that would just break uh, mechanical watches. If it was a quartz watch, I probably wouldn't, you know, I'd be quite happy not even to check that it's still working. But the fact that I picked it up and looked at it and it was still ticking away, um, I was half amazed that it was doing that. But, you know, I could buy a quartz watch. I know it's going to be more reliable. It's going to be more shock resistant. It's going to be way more accurate and it's going to be a lot cheaper. Why are we buying mechanical watches? It's because it's a luxury. Because it has soul. It speaks to you. It's an emotional choice over a practical one. And luxury is all about the emotional choice, building that dream, and then buying into that dream. That's what luxury basically is. And the book talks about that a lot. And as humans, we tend to like things more when they have expected flaws. I mean, even the advertising for Volkswagen, the Volkswagen Beetle, when it first came out by, uh, by VW, they focused on almost promoting the flaws. They would say um, ugliness is only skin deep. So it was almost like they were trying to create the perfect car to the point where they couldn't care less about aesthetics. So they almost promoted their flaw. Um, I think it was uh, Listerine was also another one that was um, the taste you hate twice a day. So it was putting its flaws out there, almost using its flaws as a selling point um, because we tend to like things that are flawed. And there was an experiment done at Harvard University, a psychology experiment uh, in the mid-60s. And it was a film about um, a guy. It was an actor on film, on camera, and he was being filmed, uh, being asked questions in a quiz. Now, the what was happening in the video wasn't important at that time it was just him answering questions and at, at the end he gets the answers and they tell him how many he got correct and how many he got incorrect etc and then he proceeds purposely uh, he proceeds to spill a cup of coffee all over his trousers and then attempts to clean it up and then the film ends now what they did was they showed it to presumably thousands of people but half of them they edited out or they didn't include the part where he spills coffee all over himself and the feedback they got from the experiment after showing some people the edited version of him just finishing up with his answers and then nothing happens and then the other version which is him spilling coffee all over himself there was a much higher regard for the actor when people saw him spill coffee all over himself. People liked him more, much more in fact. So it shows that when not only people, but also products have open flaws, we have a higher likeness for them. So I'm not going to go into exactly why, because I'm not 100% sure. But what we do know 
is that when something has a flaw, people tend to like it more. I mean, if you look at the world's most expensive car, the most, most money ever paid for a car was a Ferrari 250 GTO, 1963 model. It's a special edition. This car is probably going to have terrible quality issues with it. It's going to break down quite often. Um, you know, it's it's going to have be have difficult difficult to find parts for it and all that kind of thing. But it's still sold for seventy million, seventy million for one car. Whereas if that person perhaps bought a another car, say a premium car like a Lexus, for example, the likelihood of something going wrong with it, the likelihood of it breaking down, the likelihood of of it having some peculiar problem is extremely low. Why would someone buy such a flawed car? 1963, think about how old that is, but someone spent 70 million. It's the flaws and the fact that it's old that give it its charm. Uh, a Rolls-Royce, for example, it's a huge vehicle and it's very, very difficult to park, especially in the UK where it's made. You know, But these are flaws which we enjoy. Um, in order to enjoy cigars, you have to... It's flawed because you need to know how to smoke a cigar in order to enjoy one. You can't just pick one up, light the end of it, and start chuffing away. You have to know how to smoke it properly. There's an etiquette to it. There's all sorts of peculiarities. It has to be stored between 65 and 75% humidity levels. You know, it's, it's essentially a flawed product, but we love it because of all these little problems that we have to navigate in order to enjoy it. So moving on to the next anti-law, the presumed price should always seem higher than the actual price. It does mention in the book that you will often see, say you go to a, I don't know, London, Paris, New York, and you go up one of the famous streets known for their expensive boutiques of luxury products, and you peer through the window and you see something that is a high quality luxury product, what are the chances that you're always going to see a price below it? The idea is they want you to build a price in your head which is much higher than the actual price. So, when you put your prices on something that's a luxury product, you are then letting the person know how much it is worth and what value it is. If you do not put a price on there, that person's imagination can then run wild and assume, on average, not always, but assume that the price is a lot higher than it is. So when they do find out the actual price and it's much lower than they thought, the likelihood of them buying is now going to be much significantly higher. Now this is our perceived price. So if they assume that the price is a lot higher than what it actually is, when they're, say it's a watch, for example, when they're walking out on the street and someone sees, you know, this famous brand watch on the person's arm, then they are going to assume that it's a higher price. And then that person increases their level of status. And remember, luxury is very much intertwined with status. So if that person then buys it and then gifts it to someone, of course, the discussion of price never comes up. And the person it's gifted to then has a high perceived price for this probably in most cases going to be a lot higher than it actually was then that person is going to be even more thankful and even more in awe of the person who's gifted it to them and what that will do is it will make the person who's gifting it look very good 
And as humans, we're quite strange creatures. We always want people to think that things that we have are of a higher value than they actually are. And you may have done this yourself where, say, perhaps you've bought a television and you bought it on sale. It was 1200 and you bought it for 599 And you have people around the house and they remark at your new television. Wow, it's, you know, it's this beautiful TV. Look how thin it is, blah, blah, blah. How much was it? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, oh, it was 599 and then leave it at that? No, you're, you're probably going to be saying, oh, it was, oh, that's 1200 Because then there's a certain level of status. They think, oh, wow, he can afford, you know, 1200 for a, a television or whatever it is. Or you might go, it was $1,200, uh, but I bought it for $599. But you, you want to get that 1200 in there because it elevates your status. And probably the only reason that we'll go, oh, it was 1200 reduced to 599 is just to make the person think that we're a little bit more savvy when it comes to bargain hunting, therefore in some way increasing our status. But the presumed price should always seem higher than the actual price. And you'll even see this in you know, high-end restaurants. You go in, there's no price on the menu. You know, it, it's, everything is presumed. So that when you get the final bill, you're expecting it to be ridiculously expensive. And then you're presently surprised that it's not as bad as you thought, thus ensuring you're probably going to come back there. So that's one of the interesting anti-laws. And that's why sometimes you will see these high-end places, you know, it's and it, and it even coined the phrase, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. So that's one of the main reasons why you won't see you know, there are some exceptions to this, but you won't see, you know, a, a Birkin bag in a window in an Hermes boutique with a price on it. Uh, there might be some exceptions to that, but generally high-end products, you're not going to see a price. You need to go in and ask. They want you to presume that the price is higher than it actually is. And the last anti-law that I'll take you through is the role of advertising is not to sell. Now, just let that sink in for a little bit because, um, well, if you're not selling, what, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. And absolutely, it's, you know, when I first read that, I was like, that's going to be a hard one to sell to me, you know? <laughs> it's going to be a difficult one to explain that and for me to go, mm, yeah. Well, what they're actually talking about is selling, yes, that's the end product. That's what you want to happen. But the role of advertising isn't to directly sell, it's to indirectly sell. And the way to do that is to build a dream. And this goes very much to the emotional side of things. So to build a dream is first and foremost what you want to do. If you see a, uh, an advert, say Aston Martin, bringing it back to Aston Martin again, there was one that... I saw on Google, I just quickly Google Aston Martin adverts. Um, because if you see a cheaper car, say a Ford, a Peugeot, a Citroen, um, Saturn, wherever you are in the world, a lot of times in magazines or newspapers, you will see a price up there. You know, um, you know, 15999 with two years interest-free credit and extended warranty. And they're giving you price. They're putting the price on there because it's not a luxury product. If you see a luxury product being advertised in a magazine or a newspaper, 
likely you will not see a price. You will see a very emotive picture with a message on there, usually something quite cryptic, or you could take it in a multitude of different ways. But the idea is to build a dream and just a quick Google on, you know, Aston Martin advert got me a picture of a seductive picture of an Aston Martin's rear end with a wolf staring into the camera with its big eyes in a defensive position, just staring. And the caption next to it was, Beautiful won't be tamed. Beautiful won't be tamed. Now that's an interesting because you, you can, lots of people will, will read that and think different things. Uh, so it's, it, it's, the Aston Martin is beautiful. You can't tame an Aston Martin. What does that mean? But the, the whole thing is building an image and then you, your mind can just run with it. Why right? isn't this like a wild animal and it's not something that's just under your control. There's exhilaration with it as you try and attempt to tame it. But there's so much horsepower that you're likely to spin off into your death. But, you know, <laughs> but whatever is is designed to build an emotion. And that emotional response might be to buy. But it's not going to go Aston Martin. It's fast. And it goes quickly for 129999 with a three-year extended warranty. It just, it just wouldn't fit. If you saw a, an advert for Bentley cars and a Bentley GT Continental, and they're putting a price on there, and if you buy now with, an, you know, with a, this discount code, you can get 3% off, you know, and uh, lower insurance. It, it wouldn't go with it. It would seem odd to see it. So luxury, the role of advertising is not to sell. It's to build a dream that that person then builds desire and they want to then buy. And that's the point where you sell. So with luxury, you build a dream. And the way we can do that as a leather craftspeople to build a dream is to put images, perhaps videos on our websites, on our social media, where we create an atmosphere with our imagery and video that somebody wants to buy into. It's a dream. It's the, the craftsmanship that goes into it. The person then embodies us and imagines what it's like to be us and then wants to be a part of that. And you're building this dream and the desire and the skill and the heritage and the history and the, the, the secretive techniques and things like that. And then people are more likely to want to buy our products than if I just put up a alligator card holder and say it's you know uh, seven seven fifty for this card holder. Click to buy now. It it just wouldn't sell in the same way. And I've seen this before. Um, you know you want to build that desire and almost make them jump through ho a few hoops. Not make it very difficult for them to buy because obviously you're not going to sell that way. But you want them to build an image first. You want them to build that dream first. And that's something that I can really agree with. So on face value, the role of advertising is not to sell. Not to sell directly, no. It's to build a dream first and then build that desire for your brand. And then they will buy. So if, like me, you were reading these and you're thinking, mm, this, you know, if, if I try and incorporate some of these ideas into my own uh, strategy to sell my leather goods, I, I'm, I'm going to end up losing out. And if that's what you think, you're absolutely right. 
the idea behind these anti-lords is in fact short-term loss, long-term gain. Because luxury is built on reputation. Reputation, history, heritage. You might be a brand that hasn't been going for very long. You might be just somebody selling leather goods on Etsy, for example. But what you're doing has history and heritage, and that's what you'll be focusing on using you know, showing pictures of you holding tools that are over a hundred years old, using them to make the products that that person could then buy, and then talking about those tools and the history behind them and how, you know, generations of craftsmen could have been used, it's entirely possible, could have been using that tool. So trying to build a dream, trying to build an emotive advertisement is essentially what you should be doing if you're selling luxury. If you're interested in uh, producing volume and selling volume, then a traditional approach to marketing is probably going to be better for you. If you are looking to work with exotics, if you're looking to make more and more complex leather goods, something that takes hours and hours and hours and years of skill and practice to do, obviously you're gonna be selling for a much higher price. You should really place yourself in the luxury sector is your leather goods are a luxury product and if you're selling a luxury product and you want to speak the language of luxury then i really recommend the luxury strategy is a really really good read there's lots to it there's parts that you might not be interested in um, but there's definitely going to be things in there that kind of change your way of thinking or at least make you look at things in a different way so if you're not interested in selling leather goods and you're just a just say just a hobbyist <laughs> but if you're into leather goods as a hobby then it's definitely a good book to have so you can kind of future proof your brand if you're looking to go from rustic um quickly made leather goods into more luxurious uh, elaborate leather goods then transitioning from those things from basic to advanced, you also want to manipulate your marketing strategy. And that's where this, this book really comes into play. And the guys who wrote this book really do know what they're talking about. So that's the end of this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It was something that I thought many people would have a lot of benefit from. If you do have any other ideas or if you want something to discuss, um, I have had quite a few ideas come forward, but please don't let that stop you. Get in touch with me and say, hi, could you talk about this? Or I have this question. Um, I, I just kind of wanted to focus on the book review on this week. So I will get back to answering some of your questions. I know there's a few of you out there who really want answers to certain questions, and I will get back to that shortly. Well, next week, in fact. So in the meantime, if you're interested in learning more advanced leather goods, so if it, luxury leather goods is something that you're looking into moving into, check out my website, unless you're on it already, leathercraftmasterclass.com, where I have a series of streamable videos for $9.99, look at me telling you prices, $9.99 a month. <laughs> or you can buy them individually for $29.99. So the products that I make <laughs> are, uh, I categorize as luxury leather goods. Um, but video courses, that's a difficult one. Where would I position that? Uh, scarcity is definitely high on the list, which would make it a luxury product, but uh, I'm not exactly positioning um, courses as a luxury product. But uh, it's definitely an interesting one, but my leather goods is something I position as a luxury product. 
But uh, if you are interested in, in learning more, please check out the courses, see if there's something on there for you. And as always, contact me if you have any questions. And I will see you next week, Friday, every Friday, 6 p.m. BST, the Leathercraft Masterclass podcast. Be there or be square.